0: Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Okay, hello! And welcome to a USC center for the political future bully pulpit series on a fascinating topic, which we like to call the 74 million vote question about our voters of color becoming swing voters. We're going to take a look at part of that coalition that voted for Donald Trump, who of course lost. But still managed to get the second most popular votes in American presidential history. I'm Mike Murphy. I'm the co director of the USC Center for the Blakal Future. So, greetings from me and our staff and my partner in crime, who's uh, not with us today, but here in spirit, Bob Shrum. Now, I'm going to introduce our esteemed panel here and uh, give you an idea of who we brought in to uh, express their point of view about this fascinating topic. We have Professor Musa Al Garbi, who is a sociologist at Columbia University. He's the Paul and I always mangle names, so I apologize if I get this wrong. The Paul F. Laser fellow in the Department of Sociology and a Mellon Sawyer Fellow on Trust and Mistrust of Experts for the Interdisciplinary Center on Innovative Theory and Empirics in partnership with the American Assembly of Columbia. His work focuses on protecting civil rights and civil liberties, especially with regards to race and religion, as well as ensuring the U.S. national security, foreign policy, and domestic law enforcement. Organs are as effective, beneficent, And restrained as possible. Now we also have my old friend Robert George, Another disappointed victim of the current Trump Republican Party. He is a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. He's formerly an editorial writer Through the New York Daily News And the New York Post. And he's a conservative and libertarian blogger and pundit. You've seen him on TV He's worked in the past for the Republican National Committee and for Newt Gingrich, the former Speaker of the House. And I believe, through the miracle of the Internet, our friend Mike Madrid, who was a spring 2019 fellow here at this Center, has joined us. Mike is a longtime Republican political strategist with an expertise in Latino voting trends and, and analysis based here in California. Also joining us is one of our fantastic fellows here, Shaniqua McClendon. Now, you podcast listeners are going to be interested in this. Shaniqua is the political director for Crooked Media, where she leads their political strategy and civil engagement program, Vote Save America. Of course, Crooked Media is the base of Pod Save America and other leading podcasts. And she created their highly successful 2020 volunteer engagement and fundraising program. My Democratic hack friends are always raving about what a great job they did under her leadership. Before that, Shanique was served on Capitol Hill as a policy advisor, the Senator Kay Hagan, and legislative director, the Congresswoman Alma S. Adams. And again, she is a spring 2021 fellow here at the center and is teaching a course on one of my favorite topics, political disruptors. So thank you, everybody, for joining us here today for this discussion. I want to kick it off with a little bit of windbaggery, and then I'll just ask questions after that. But let me pull up. I actually uh, pulled a few statistics together. So let's do the theater of the mind here for a minute. And imagine you're a pretty happy staffer at Biden for president watching the election returns come in. You know, the really big stuff you care about had been going well for months. Things are looking good in Michigan. Biden carried it. Pennsylvania carried it. Wisconsin carried it, taking them all away from Donald Trump. And you're in striking distance to make history in Georgia and very competitive in Arizona. Everything's going pretty well. But one state you're watching, like any presidential campaign, is Florida, the biggest, quote unquote, swing mega state in the country where the Biden campaign and independent groups, including Republican voters against Trump, where I was, spent millions upon millions upon millions of dollars in a race that just about every private and public poll was showing to statistically tied, one point one way or one point the other. A lot of it was by then Biden plus one. So you're thinking, wow, maybe we're really doing big in Florida. The state, by the way, where the president's campaign was in many ways the most engaged in terms of their spending. But bang, lightning struck. Dade County, Miami-Dade County, which has always been a democratic base county there, saw a tremendous drop-off in Democratic vote while Donald Trump was losing the presidency. A couple of quick numbers. Hillary Clinton won Miami-Dade by a very good version of usual, 290,000 votes. Joe Biden only won by 85,000 votes at 53%, 10 points behind Hillary. I can guarantee you people getting those numbers in Florida politics were checking to think it was a typo because that has never happened in Dade County before. It was a total collapse from 290,000 down to just 85,000. In Palm Beach County, Joe Biden won by 98,000, also in uh, South Florida. And, you know, his margin was trimmed by a much smaller amount, but still trimmed by about 4,000 votes. And in Broward County, Fort Lauderdale, another huge democratic base county, all we Republican hacks who work in Florida watch Broward Because it comes in late, and it's always, from a Republican point of view, terrible. But Donald Trump was able to come in there at 7,600, cut the margin from Hillary by 7,600 votes. Not huge, but again, the wrong direction. So the bottom line was, the main reason Donald Trump won Florida was a collapse among voters in South Florida, particularly voters in Miami-Dade, which is a county of color. It is a majority minority county. So the question is, what the hell happened? Was there something in the water? Or are voters of color becoming swing voters? And just quickly, before we start with the Q&A and the discussion, I want to add, we've all heard about the Dade County thing. We're having fun talking about it. But there was somewhere else in the Rio Grande Valley, which is that 1,200-mile-long border region in South Texas, from Brownsville to McAllen to right off to El Paso. That's one of the most reliable Democratic areas in the great state of Texas. Now, this year, to his credit, Joe Biden got closer in Texas than any Democrat has in a long time. He lost by about six points. You know, we Republicans often look at Texas as kind of the buckle on the Electoral College belt when the GOP wins the presidency. But Biden came close. and There was a lot of excitement he might even win. But the Rio Grande Valley, which I guarantee you was the place the Texas Democratic strategists were probably least worried about they were working there turnout was important but it was it was not quite as important as the suburbs of Dallas and Houston and San Antonio again had a bit of a collapse these are smaller counties but they add up in 2016 Hillary won Hidalgo County by 60 and 40 votes respectively Biden only carried them by 5 and 17 points and finally And then the kind of historically, ironically named county of Zapata, tremendous name, which was the name of the oil company, the George H.W. Bush. That was the name he used when he started in the Texas oil fields. It is an oil county. Trump actually flipped it to win with almost 53 percent, the first Republican to carry that border county since Reconstruction. Again, overwhelmingly a Latino county. So. What's going on? What does it mean? Is this a change in American politics or is it just kind of an oddity of the Trump election and what what does it mean about the future? So, does anybody want to kind of start on the general point and then I've got some questions to kind of steer the discussion here.
1: Mike, I'll I'll jump in. First of all, to give the devil his due, the Trump campaign from early on did a lot of um, homework and paid a lot of attention to Florida. And uh, so going back to as early as, the, well, they basically started their reelect almost the minute Trump was sworn in. And from 2017, 2018, they did a lot of research and did a lot of spending in Florida, in particular, targeting the old school Republican base in Miami of Cuban expats which had been traditionally Republican, well, as you know, had been Republican for decades, but started floating towards the Democrats in, under Obama and, and, in, and, and following even with, even with Clinton. But on top of that, they also took advantage of the upheavals that was going down in Venezuela. And you had a lot of expats who moved, moved to Florida. And that combination of Venezuelans and and Cubans were really responded to the trump message of biden being a uh, to use one of your favorite phrases sock puppet for for socialism and so when trump and other republicans kept hammering that notion that Biden was going to be in the thrall of AOC and the the defund the police crowd, that resonated with a lot of Latinos who had escaped communism, escaped authoritarian regimes. And it seemed that even though Biden, other places in the country kind of effectively pushed back against the socialism charge and pushed back against the defund the police, I think it found an audience a little resonance, uh, d- down in, a re- a resonance in those places down in, in Florida, and I think to a slightly lesser
0: extent in Texas as well. Professor Garby, what's your take on it? Because it, um, I think the conventional wisdom would have been that you know, there'd be kind of a generic anti-Trump vote there because, you know, most of the polling showed he was highly unpopular in the Latino and the African-American community. Yet Dade County is kind of an interesting outlier. Well, so I think part
2: of the conversation, part of the problem with the way the conversation unfolds, frankly, is that it's it's almost too Trump-centric, right? So, it, they're, so they're, they're assuming that the trends are driven by something Trump said or did or didn't do. In fact, I've done some essays uh, back in 2017 and then more recently in The Nation this year. Showing that a lot of these shifts of minorities away from the Democrats began before Trump. They started in 2010, and what happened in and and so, for instance, even in 2016, when you look at 2016, actually, uh, white turnout was roughly stagnant, and Trump got a smaller share of the white vote than Mitt Romney. Trump was able to win despite his sort of lackluster performance with whites because he gained a larger share of Hispanics than Romney, a larger share of African Americans than Romney, a larger share of Asian voters than Romney. So he was able to win despite his his relative blasé performance with whites precisely because he did stronger with minorities than his predecessor did. And 2020, uh, Republicans continue to trend in the same direction. But this is a trend, critically, that began before 2016 and before 2020. It's a trend that, um, so neither 2016 nor 2020 were aberrations. They were continuations of longer running trends. And so, uh, yes, it's true. Trump made appeals to voters of color. And it's also true that they resonated or didn't alienate Voters in the way that Democrats might have thought they would, and we can talk about why that that is more. But I just want to start by flagging that some of the trends probably have more to do with voters of color becoming alienated from the Democratic Party than they do with some kind of unique appeal of Trump.
0: Gotcha. No, that's interesting. It's you know, there's a debate because every election, they people try to re re reengineer it and have the one magic thing. I found in my experience, it's never one thing. And you're totally right about that trend. You look at Detroit uh, and Milwaukee, you can argue both African American kind of depressed enthusiasm or turnout for Hillary might have tipped either state. You can make that argument. And the Trump people will say, hey, justice reform, issues, 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 you know, our bumper stickers were better and all that. But I, I agree with you about that overall trend. The question was because of Trump's racial insensitivity, would there have been a reverse handwind to reverse the trend? And in some places, I think the data says there was. But in other places, like South Florida, maybe not so much. Shaniqua, what's your take on all this?
3: I definitely agree with what was just said. I think that this is more of a conversation about Democrats and their inability to do the work that they've needed to do over the last decade than Trump being you know, a shiny object to voters of color. We worked in a lot of these battleground states. We did less work in Texas, more in Florida, and the stories we were hearing about the Biden campaign not having enough advertisements or literature in Spanish. Uh that seems very obvious that you should be appealing to Spanish speaking people in Florida. And also separate from what Democrats needed to do, there was a lot of misinformation going around. And so I wouldn't call claims of um linking Joe Biden to socialism. I don't think that's a message. I think those are lies. And I think those lies really permeated in some of these places and they, you know, If you have come from an authoritarian country and you hear that, that Mm -hmm. will be scary. But if it's not the truth, you can't really say that um, it was, well, I guess it was effective, but it's not an honest means of campaigning. I agree with what Robert said. Trump was in these places, pretty uh, specifically Florida, very early. Democrats had a primary this cycle. So they were fighting each other while he was able to make inroads and get his message out. And Republicans just did a better job. Do I agree with it? No, but they did a better job of taking things like defund the police and making it central to the message in these places, even though, you know, there weren't Democrats in Florida talking about defunding the police and Joe Biden pushed back very uh, firmly against doing that. But because all of our politics are national, those conversations were able to permeate. And we saw that down ballot, you know, a lot of state legislative races went to Republicans, because the state at the state level, you do have more control over the police and Democrats were being accused of um, supporting that. But going back to Democrats, the infrastructure work that needed to happen just wasn't happening in places like Florida. This is just my observation And working there. The progressive groups weren't as coordinated as some other states like Arizona, where you saw Democrats actually pull out the win. And I remember reading a political article about the Biden campaign pulling Puerto Rican organizers out of Puerto Rican communities to go organize in white communities. That makes absolutely no sense. You need to be, you know, if people are local to their communities, that's where they should be organizing. So I think there were a lot of missteps by Democrats in a state that, you know, has been decided typically by around one percentage point uh, to not be making those investments. And lastly, I'll say no part of any state, no voter should be taken for granted. And we've seen Democrats do that time and time again, not making the investment that is necessary to actually appeal to voters. And, you know, you think about black voters, having a higher percentage of support for Donald Trump, Black voters have seen Democrats come in, pander, and then after they win, they don't see any outcomes from them. And I think voters are a lot more plugged in now, especially with coronavirus, and have said, no, you can't just have our vote because, you know, you're the lesser of two evils. We've given you an opportunity to show us something and you haven't. And so that makes uh, those voters a lot more open to trying something new.
0: Yeah, no, that's interesting. Mike Madrid, I'm going to go to you next. I'll just make one point because I've worked in Dade County for, you know, decades. I did both of Jeb Bush's governor campaigns. I'm a fan of the Biden campaign. I thought they did very, very well. But what did surprise me was it was clear, and there was early polling in the newspapers down there by a local pollster, uh, the Ben Dixon group, or well-respected, that the Obama-Cuba agenda was a problem for Joe Biden. You know, Biden got a lot of political gas being the partner. But it was a problem down there. And the one thing that I thought would happen was Biden would go down there and push back a little on that and and create his own identity. They kept sending Senator Harris down there, but I think they made a mistake because Dade County is a complicated place with different groups that are in tension in local politics. Black voters, Cuban voters, Nicaraguan voters, Venezuelan voters, as Robert mentioned, white voters. And then you've got WASP down in Kendall. You've got Jews in Miami Beach. You know, it, it's a polyglot kind of place. Like all the the local politics is not always a blended coalition. So there was one big note of anti-Chavez and anti-Cuban the dictatorship that needed to be played loud by Joe Biden on the ground. And I can never figure out why they didn't do that. That's my one tactical criticism. I agree with the other things you said about organization. But Mike, feel free also to expand a little into the Rio Grande, because there is kind of a Latino connection here, where local issues seem to trump group identity as far as being aligned to a party, not just in this election, but the trend that uh, the professor was talking about. What's your take on all this? Because you've worked here in California and other places, particularly with Latino voters who are increasingly more important in the Republican process.
4: Yeah, and Murphy, we met actually Miami-Dade when you were working for Jeb, and we were talking about this thing, Topic, 20, <laughs> a long time ago. I won't say how many years, but a long time ago. So it's something we've been grappling with for a long time. Let me, let me say this. I do believe that the Miami-Dade socialist message, multi-generational Cuban vote, yeah, it's true. It's also, I think, dramatically overblown for what we're talking about for the size and scope of the change, the demographic change of the Latino vote. Cuban voters in, in Florida are only 6% of the entire electorate. Puerto Ricans are as well. OK, so the, the over the underperformance and turnout modeling with Puerto Ricans in the I-4 quarter is a much more significant problem as a practitioner, from my perspective, than losing the multi generational Cuban votes to socialists. Sure, it matters. But let's look at the long term here. Let's step back and look at what's actually going on. If you're trying to win the race, you're not going to win it by peeling off four or five percent of a Cuban vote. You're going to get it by turning out a higher share to Ms. McClendon's point of the Democratic base that you were not getting. The question becomes, why isn't that happening? And I'll get to that in just one second, but let me speak directly to the Rio Grande. You're exactly right. That's The, the collapse of the Latino vote, and, and not just in turnout numbers, but in the actual switching from Republican, uh, Democrat to Republican, is something that is a trend line that the professor just mentioned. This is not anomalous, not unique to 2020. It was very evident and on display in 2016, and it has been happening for some time. And I think the answer to both of those points, both of those questions is the same, which is the Democratic Party really does not have a strong economic populist message that is speaking to non-college-educated voters, generally. The non-college-educated voter in the Democratic coalition is a voter of color. They're black and brown workers, increasingly. White non-college-educated voters are Republicans. They're already gone, okay? And so... The Democratic Party's inability or, or its clumsy handling, for example, of the fracking issue, which was a concern for Pennsylvania, probably had much greater impact in the Rio Grande Valley with Latinos than it did white union workers in, in, in the outskirts of Pittsburgh. And, and that's the challenge. That's the dilemma that I think is broad based. There's one of the quick anomalous point I want to bring out, which is the widest swath of Mexican-Americans, the Mexican-Americans are 80 percent of the Latino vote in, in, in the country, live in California and in Arizona. If you look at the turnout numbers, uh, the raw votes totals, record highs, but if you also look at the vote break, they were very distinct. They stayed in the traditional 30-year trajectory. The question is, why were they so different than what was happening in the Rio Grande? And you could even extrapolate to why it was happening differently in Florida. The answer is really simple. The recent history since the mid-1990s in both California and Arizona has been a history of repeated anti-immigrant, anti undocumented anti-Latino sentiment. You have not had that to the same degree in recent memory in Texas. And so for the moment, in places like California and Arizona, even the overt racism being explicit by President Trump was not able to overcome that. But the real lesson here, especially in the Rio Grande and in Texas, and in some parts of Florida, is that economic populism and paying the rent is sometimes especially for us-born hispanic men latino men and african-american men is much more impactful than the charges of racism because and i know this is breaking news here we all knew he was a racist we've known he's a racist you keep telling us he's racist we know it we still got to pay the rent right and that's what's driving some of that share of the electorate it's nominal but it's measurable, and it's a real red flag that I think Democrats need to start paying attention
0: to. Yeah, the best real grand analysis I've seen shows it was it's such a one-industry belt. Any job with a decent wage in healthcare, or the vast majority, they're oil-connected. Yeah. And so it might be the old Tip O'Neill rule that all politics, even with big gravity forces, are local. The real grand story, in some ways, is bigger than the Florida story, because it was yeah. so universal across uh, across the region, and the region was so economically connected. So let me let me go to Robert, who I saw nodding here, I think. What's your take on that? And second, what if you do if you're Republican post-Trump, and I'm going to ask our Democratic friends the same question, to win the battle of those groups? Because I think there is evidence, sometimes at least my criticism, is that the Democrats see everything through a lens of groups. And so all voters of a certain gene code are supposed to you know, vote one way, but this chipping away that's happening now on other issues, I think is a challenge, an opportunity for the R's post Trump. They can get their act together and something the Democrats, I think, have to look at their playbook on messaging and think about. Man, hey, why don't you start off? We're we'll go around.
1: Yeah, no, I agree with you. One other thing I will throw out there as some grist as well is the dog that didn't really bark in 2020 as much as we thought, which was immigration. I have not been able to research this actually, but I, I, have a, I have a theory that John Roberts, Justice John Roberts, did Donald Trump a slight favor when the Supreme Court in, I think it was June, struck down Trump's DACA overturn executive order. That, in a sense, kind of muted immigration. And it, it was very interesting that Donald Trump, who, for all of his craziness in certain ways, can be very tactically smart there was not much talk about i mean obviously they talked about the wall and he went down there a couple of times and showed it but there was not really much talk about immigration really on in terms of both parties going down the stretch i think that uh, the trump figured that those who uh, hated him on uh, who, who hated immigration were with him already and he felt no need to energize the opposition even more, so he barely talked about it down the uh, down the stretch. And the the fact that the the, the DACA uh, executive order was was overturned meant that the supporter of the Dreamers and so forth didn't feel that extra energy to go against Trump. So I think that also played a factor. But I was struck by uh, Mike's point about you know you two discussing this about you know, 20 years ago, and we're having this similar conversation now. I think it was, it was in 2000, shortly before the election in 2000, that uh, John Judas and Roy Teixeira came out with their book called The Emerging Democratic Majority. And they made this idea that the browning of America, the increase uh, in the electorate of uh, Latino voters and African-American voters and other groups of color, given how they have uh, leaned towards the Democratic Party, it was kind of the idea of demographics is destiny and the Democrats just have to be ready for that group to come full born and they're going to be, you know, winning the presidency for time immemorial. And then, oops, 2000 happened, partly because of, yes, Florida, or actually almost wholly because of Florida. And so this idea of this emerging democratic majority has still been out there. This idea of demographics being destiny has sort of kind of, hung over the heads of the Democratic Party. But each time, Obama in 2008, 2012, obviously, was able to take advantage of that. But when the electorate sort of reverted closer back to the mean with Clinton or even Joe Biden, it becomes much easier for Republicans to, yes, if they've got a targeted economic message. And by the way, Trump was very, very disciplined down the stretch reminding people of that African-Americans had the highest percentage of employment under him, you know, record numbers for Latinos as well. Yes, was it all completely true? No, there was lots of shading of the truth here and there, but he was disciplined on that message. And uh, as you guys said, the Democrats didn't really have a counter message that was purely e- economic-based that was appealing to blue-collar and uh, working-class
0: voters. Professor Elgarbi, why don't you... You take it. What's your take on all this? And then, Shaniqua I'll come to you to wrap up the, the question on that. So there was a lot there. Can you just remind me of the question? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course. I think a lot of it is the idea that, to what you said earlier, which I agree with, which is the old kind of identity glue is loosening a little. And so that is both uh, an opportunity for the Republicans, if in the rare event we can get our act together, which is always an open question these days, and potentially a vulnerability for the Democrats. Some people say it's a question of more organization on the Democratic side. Other people say, no, no, this, this fissure is, is real. And, we, you know, the Democrats are going to have to earn those voters back. They used to kind of assume they get for free. Those voters are becoming more popular, particularly Latino voters as the population explodes. Also Asian voters, the fastest growing group uh, that is leaning Democratic, but still fairly small, but growing over time. You know, so there's there's arguments there. And then the the uh, is it tactical or is it a messaging thing? Is it policy and et cetera, et cetera. So the, okay. the whole looking forward.
2: I mean, one thing I'll flag with respect to the emerging Democratic majority thesis is that um, there's not a great history for that prediction bearing out. So so it's not even just the the more recent Roy took one like. Right before Nixon won two consecutive landslides, the, this this idea that Democrats were on the verge of an enduring majority because of demographic shifts was popular. And then Nixon won two consecutive landslide victories. And then after Nixon uh, was discredited and the Republicans lost, and Jimmy Carter won, it started to become popular again. And then what did you see? Reagan, just you know, um, <laughs> and 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 then so, and then you know, uh, more recently uh, in the Obama age, especially. You know, this thesis started to get to get this republic. So the the track record of it, that almost every time this idea becomes popular, is followed by sort of devastation for the Democrats. That track record (laughs) alone should cause people to be very um, cautious. When it starts to become popular again, Democrats should be nervous. I think some of the core things that you see when you look at the trend of when minority voters started shifting back away from Democrats and and towards um, Republicans there's sort of an analogous and under-discussed shift that had been happening among whites as well. In particular, sort of a highly educated, professional, upper SES whites started gravitating more towards the Democratic Party and have in some ways kind of captured the party and the way it talks about things, the way they think, the way they approach things. The way. I mean, like if you did a drinking game, I don't drink, I'm a Muslim, but if you did a drinking game for the number of times that Joe Biden said symbolic, I mean, um, systemic racism on the campaign trail, you know, you would um, but like that, that framing of systemic racism isn't the way that sort of working class. Right. You know, that's 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 academic speak. That's not like talking to, to to ordinary people speak, right? And so I think there's sort of a messaging problem in that the messaging is aimed mostly at sort of professional elites as part of the problem. I think that part of the problem too, frankly, is that there's sort of a cultural divide that's happening as well. When you look at African-Americans and Hispanics, on average, tend to be more socially conservative than whites. They tend to be more religious than whites. They tend to be symbolically conservative. And by symbolically conservative, I mean they tend to be patriotic, to value hard work, to to value law and order, you know, things like this. And, you know, in in abstract. And Trump was very – and so you saw, for instance, people assume that Trump's law and order message would alienate uh, Hispanics and African-Americans. And instead, and it it doesn't seem to have done that. And in fact, there was a great study that was done uh, recently. I I forget his name, so forgive me if you're listening or if you end up watching this, but he wrote a great book called Dog Whistle Politics. And um, he did a study in the lead up to the election where he presented voters with classic examples of racial dog whistles by Trump. And what he found is that they resonated just as much with African-Americans as with whites, and they resonated more with Hispanics than with either group. And no, and people, most people across the board did not view these statements as racist, statements that the scholars would sure. view it as clear-cut examples of sort of racial dog whistles. Not only did they not uniquely appeal to whites, they didn't alienate people of color either. And, you know, we can dive into that more later. But I think there's this cultural split that's happening as well, where, you know, a lot of sort of working class African-Americans and Hispanic voters don't necessarily think that the democratic party represents their values anymore. And so to the extent that they stray away from the economic uh, and economically populist policy, then they might not represent their interests either. Um, (laughs) And that's a real problem, right? Um, That's something that the Democrats are going to need to sort of work on going forward. And it is, and that's sort of an opportunity space, I guess, for Republicans, if if we're um, looking at that too.
0: Right No, And I think a lot of people in the post-Trump party are thinking about, you know, it's interesting The thing that Biden did on the demographic scorecard that is not that reported, but really is the biggest accomplishment, and I think Trump does get some alienating credit for this, is Biden won college-educated voters. That used to be a rock-solid Republican group. Not anymore, which is that the real fulcrum of the election increasingly becomes college-educated or not. And that's been a flip. That, you know, while Trump is running up the score totally with people who didn't go to college who make a living with their hands, particularly who are white, but others, as we're talking about today, the college-educated suburbs have totally turned the other way, which, you know, has driven a lot of the Republican failures uh, of the last uh, four or five years.
2: And you see this when you look at the religious trends as well. So, for instance, Trump gained with... Uh, he gained with Muslims. He gained with Jewish people. He gained with Mormons. He gained with he gained with Protestants. He ba- he g- he basically gained with all religious groups other than Catholics, which was which ended up being kind of um, stable from twenty sixteen to twenty twenty. He did a little slightly worse with Catholics and, and non religious voters, which he did worse with. But almost all religious groups shifted more towards Trump, including ones that you wouldn't necessarily associate mm. with the Trump vote, like Muslims. Right. The most dramatic shift was among Muslims, right? And th- that's a demographic that's comprised almost largely of what you would say people of color, right? Um, it, uh, most Muslims in America are not, don't I, don't necessarily identify it, uh, although a lot of Arabs are. Anyway, so this, this sort of shift among religious voters and this sort of values shift, I think um, again is is intimately related with the sort of racial demographic shifts you're seeing. Sorry,
0: I just no, no, that that's, of- that's very telling. I uh, We could have done a pre and after quiz, and we would have made some. I mean, that's my new bar bet in D.C. among politicians when I go back. You know, did Trump or increase or decrease with Muslim voters with his rhetoric? So you just you just bought me a few drinks at least. That's a fascinating factoid. Shaniqua, well, you're somebody in the kind of. Next generation of, of Democratic leaders, you know, you're you're in the media of the future with podcasting, you know, kind of the digital space uh, for the future of communication. What, what do you think, uh, looking forward as a Democrat, about this issue, if there is erosion, what to do about it? Is it tactics and mechanics, or is it core messaging and policy? What should the Dems focus on?
3: You can always improve your tactics, but I, I do think it centers around messaging, uh, something that several people have talked about, uh, especially during this last cycle, is the concept of black and brown voters being swing voters, but not in the middle, uh, more so on the left making a decision between voting and not voting. And as long as Democrats continue to center... Okay, so here, here's what I see as the, the mm-hmm. big issue. Democrats have centered um, moderate voters in, in their messaging. And as more uh, college educated white voters shift over from the Republican party, to being open to voting for Democrats, they've doubled down on trying to appeal to those voters. But there are a lot less of those people who will switch than the people who are just not voting because they don't feel like Democrats are speaking to their core issues. And so democratic messaging has to stop centering the people in the middle, and they need to start just speaking to the people who, you know, if they would just appeal to them in an honest way and actually deliver on those promises once they're elected, will continue to show up for them. But right now, that's just not happening. And it's really hard for me. And I don't think it's because I'm younger. But it's really hard for me to understand why that's not obvious to Democrats. And maybe Joe Biden is older, and he, you know, identifies more with those folks in the middle. But if Democrats really want to start to see sustained wins, they need to go after all of these people who are not voting, because they don't see the value in voting. Uh, And I think if they do that, then they can, we can have a lot more people who are running on truly progressive messages where it makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. And we're always going to have a range of uh, types of folks because they're a range, or candidates, because voters are so different. And we need to, people should represent the people or they should be represented by someone who actually uh, represents their interests. But just thinking about voters of color, until they're actually a priority in the party, I don't think, we're not going to see Democrats start to recoup the losses that they've had And it just, I just really don't know why it's so hard. It seems really obvious to me. But you also have to think about the fact that there is constantly, you know, in several elections, Black voters have been scapegoated as the folks who did not turn out to vote, when in reality, uh, the majority of white people, for instance, in 2016, voted for Trump. And so you can't blame people because you didn't win when you actually didn't appeal to them. And then it's just not true. Black people do vote. Um, So I think there's a lot of changes that Democrats are going to have to make, but The first one starts with, you know, watering uh, or what is it? Buttering your bread, something, you know, tending to the people (laughs) who continue Um, to show up for them. I I think I I would like to
1: politely disagree with Shaniqua, I think, just Mm -hmm. to to a certain extent, because I think we have to be careful of what we're talking about or who we're talking about when we're saying that uh, the Democrats are appealing to the middle. Because I've a number of times said that I've always thought that African Americans, as a bloc, are the conservative base of the Democratic Party, and I think Biden was. Uh, this is particularly true in the primary, but I think it also expanded also into the into the general election as election as well. While there was some overtures to the, quote, um, moderate voter here and there. It was really the targeting of the black vote and maximizing um, the black vote that certainly won him, Georgia, and certainly um, helped him in some of those blue wall states that Hillary had lost in 2016. So um, I think if your idea of, you know, the moderate is the white voter, which has been trending away from Democrats for, for decades, I think you're right. But if your idea of The moderate voter in today's Democratic Party, I think it is the African-American community. And as we were saying before, they don't necessarily respond to some of the more woke, progressive um, messages that uh, the white college aged um, Democrats might.
3: Well, yeah, and I should have been specific. I do mean white moderate voters, um, because even even thinking about uh, the Biden campaign's response to the police violence that happened this summer they always centered the property damage. You know, they said what the police did was bad, but it was the thing that was most important to get across is no one should be destroying property um, in their communities. And I think that if you are speaking to older African-Americans, you know, they don't want their communities destroyed. But I think given like the civil rights movement and understanding the anger and why people feel this way and why young people are showing up and just angry. And this could be a lot longer because I also don't want to make it we saw people coming in from different places agitating, but also a lot of Black resistance has included that. So, but I won't get into all of that. But my point is that everything, I don't think there was even an appeal to moderate Black voters or there was, but I think the center was still these white moderate voters, these white working class voters and white working class voters uh, and working class voters of color, they have a lot of similar issues. But when you center white working class voters, at some point you're going to have to kind of tiptoe into a lot of the racism that has made them feel comfortable and made them feel centered. And I think Democrats continue to do that. So yeah, I completely agree that I do think African American voters, particularly older ones, I think you're seeing something different in at um, in younger generations. But as long as mm-hmm. the, the focus is on white voters in the middle, it's really hard to appeal to others. And the last thing I'll say is, you know, young voters of color do matter. I We saw turnout go up. And if Democrats were actually making an investment there, they would see, I think, more young people show up. I don't think young people are apathetic. I think they care a lot, but no one is speaking to their interests. And the question to them becomes, well, you know, why am I going to show up? I I vote every election, but I've spoken to a lot of my peers who there's not much I can say to convince them that that's an effective way to um change what's around
0: us so I'm glad you brought this up because we're finished on this before we go to questions because this is the big debate in the Democratic Party one argument is we need to have messaging an organization to take these non-voters and inspire them to vote to kind of to kind of bring our voters in so they're not uncounted the other argument which a lot of the political consultants in my world tend to resonate with even on the Democratic side is no no that's a suckers game non-voters choose not to vote. And in a presidential election, you have high turnout, you can marginally make differences, but don't go alienating the voters you need in the suburbs, which we Democrats have gained now. It's why Biden got more votes than anybody in American history. We did really well. We broke the Republicans there. So careful, because, you know, the the voter in hand in the suburbs that we can get counts a lot more than the theoretical voter who historically has not turned out, because turnout is pretty predictable based on off-year your, on-year your election. So, you know, it's a it's a big debate. I thought you made a good case for the, uh, the turnout argument. As a trusty old consultant, I tend to be a voter in the barrel guy. But I'm going to go to Mike Madrid now to be the Judge Watner uh, and see if you have a ruling on that and anything else you want to mention. And then let's let's get the questions. Well, again, as a practitioner like you, Mike,
4: I kind of I, it's, a, it's a game of choices, right? If I was running yeah. Biden's campaign, I would have run it exactly the way that they did. The way to win there was with white college educated voters. That's where you and Arvad spent a lot of money. The Lincoln Project. I was doing the targeting. That's where we were spending a ton of dough. That's what moved those voters. But a couple of things. Uh, the, the first is this demographic, is destiny. That's really answering that question about to share his book is really the same question that are asking now. Look, folks, Democrats won seven out of the late eight last popular vote counts. That's a majority. That's a majority. So. I don't think we should ridicule what the demographics say. That's where it's heading, and the margins are getting wider, by the way. They're not getting smaller. They're going to get wider, and at a certain point, they're going to get exponential. There's this overemphasis on Republicans picking up 2%, 3 4% of the Latino vote when it's now not a small niche anymore. That's Those yeah. are horrible numbers. That's not a positive development for the Republican Party. It means like 25% pickup in a year like this. So demographics absolutely drives the considerations that are being made here. Shaniqua's point, I think, is, is, is absolutely right. It's going to have to balance them in the short term. I think Biden did what he needed to do, but there is a message, and I, I would say a message problem emanates from a policy problem. That's the real dilemma for the Democratic Party. There's a reason why, look, well, who, who are the two candidates that performed the best unexpectedly from Latino voters this year were Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. Both of them were running extremely strong, outsider, alienated campaigns. It's yeah. not just the country's not listening to you. The damn party's not listening to you. That was very resonant with young people, poor people, and people of color. The Democratic Party is going to have to engage
2: those voters where they're at if it's going to ride the demographic wave that's coming. Yeah, even in 2016, for instance, Bernie Sanders uh, was doing well with like a- young African-Americans, Um, He outperformed Hillary Clinton, but, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton ended up winning the African-Americans overall by large, large margins. But with young African-Americans, even in 2016, um, was.
0: Yeah, no, and I'll I'll reinforce Mike's point. If we were still running our presidential elections under the demography, which was about 85 percent Caucasian of 1988, Barack Obama would have been a one term president. Trump would be reelected and it would have been kind of a Republican wall. Instead, it's more or less been the reverse. And so the biggest problem the Republicans have is we, we we tend to do well with Caucasians and nobody else. So we've we picked the shrinking pie of the electorate. Americans, you know, under 18 who are about to turn into voters are now only 58 percent Caucasian. So we're, we're we're a perfect party for uh, 1976. OK, so let's go to the old mailbag here. Now, the way we're going to do this is I'm going to throw a question. Whoever wants to answer it, shout and then somebody disagree with them. And then we'll move on to the next one because we, we don't have time to uh, go through the whole panel. We're going to start with a question from Mary Palmer. What part does voter suppression and gerrymandering play in the voting trends? And so that that is a great question. I think part of distinction between voter suppression for outcomes and gerrymandering. You know, how does that warp outcomes? Because trends are trying to get through obstacles like that. It's um. yours, Shaniqua, go. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I think that it, I wish I would have said that more in uh, the conversation that we were having. Um, I think about, so I worked for Kay Hagan. We were supposed to be one of the few Democrats who won in 2014, and we lost by about 50,000 votes. And that was also after Republicans had passed a huge voter suppression bill. A lot of voters were confused about what they needed to show up uh, to vote. And there was just a ton of confusion. And so even the threat of voter suppression um, that hadn't actually been enacted yet through law depressed the vote and people didn't participate. And so as you're thinking about the ability to win elections, like that's another tool that Republicans are using. I think gerrymandering as well, it's a separate issue, More has more of an impact obviously on House races and state legislative races. But I think it also tells voters, you know, okay, I showed up to vote. It's still staying the same why should I even participate in this system? And so it kind of has this after effect or additional effect of just discouraging participation. And that's what voter suppression does in general. And so when you think about the proportional changes um, in who supported Democrats and who supported Republicans, that's another part of it. If there's a huge part of the electorate that is now not able to participate, then that's going to change what we're seeing proportionally in support for the parties.
0: Uh, yeah, and I'm, it's good I'm, for people I'm, selling alienation of every flavor. You know, right. anti institutionalism, which is in my view is dangerous.
1: Not to disagree with Shaneko, in fact I think I agree with everything she said, but just to just to add on, something I'd like to see going forward is we just talked about Donald Trump and Republicans did unusually well with black men, Latino men, and so forth. It's gonna be interesting to see if there's any ripple effect of the the post election fiasco and Trump's denying of Biden's legitimacy and saying that the entire system was rigged and his trying to overturn the votes in Georgia and Pennsylvania and some of these other other states. Because if there's one thing that really brings African Americans together, it is the notion that the other party is trying to suppress their vote. So I'm wondering if even those handful of extra black votes that Trump managed to grow for himself from 2016 to 2020, I'm wondering whether they're going to bother to stick with him, given A, what he did, and also what uh, we're seeing uh, Republicans doing across the country right now Mm -hmm. in trying to come up with what what basically, they're not voter ID laws or voter security laws, they're de facto voter suppression laws. So that's something to look at. The other thing is the Democrats also have like the worst timing in terms of underperforming in elections 2010 and 2020 years where you've got a census and you've got a subsequent reapportionment and if the democrats failed to turn over a single state legislature in 2020 which puts them on the defensive on gerrymandering um, in, a, in a number of states
0: musa did you have a point
2: oh well i mean i was going to flag uh, basically yeah. i was going to flag the the last point that uh that that, that you know, one of the consequences of twenty yeah, it's not only did they, um, yeah, they didn't gain any house in state legislatures. In fact, they lost a couple. And, and actually, I mean, looking forward, one thing that Democrats should be wary of, you know, David Shore put it well, that when a party wins, it's almost always, you can go all the way back to the Civil War. When a party takes office, they almost always lose house, uh, lose seats in the midterms that follow. There's only been two mm-hmm. times that hasn't happened. George Bush right after 9-11 and FDR when he won. Every other time when a new party takes power, they lose they lose seats in their inaugural midterms on average, about thirty five, and so the Democrats are actually in a in a rough spot possibly going into the midterms in that they actually lost seats in the House in this election too. So not only did they not pick up any state legislatures, they lost seats in the House, um, and so even if they even if they just perform average according to the historical average over the last since the Civil War, they're on track to lose the House um, and possibly the Senate. Yeah. Uh, in, in just a year from now, and it it feels strange to think that after Joe Biden got the most number, the, the largest number of votes in U.S. history, although Trump got the second largest number of votes in U.S. history also, but that Democrats could be on the cusp of losing both chambers of Congress a year from now. But that that's something that could be on the horizon, right? So, um, I, yeah, I guess, including uh,
0: by the way, those two seats uh, down on the Rio Grande Valley, if that sticks, you know, the the Dems, are, the Rams are going to try to repeat history and now that we have flying saucers with q written on them you know we're to be taken seriously but uh, so I guess that's to, a good to, point.
2: To point it's super critical i think for biden and the democrats to do, to really you know take advantage of this time to 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 do what they can do because they might they might have yeah. a lot less ability to advance their priorities they want to advance this time next year or you know a year
0: or two. yeah i totally agree uh, you know the midterm thing could be dicey only six seats. All right. Whoever wants to grab this, this is from a great friend of the center, Helen Torres. Please address the role religion plays within the Latino community. As the Latino share of vote increases, so does the number of Latino evangelicals. And then, you know, implied there is it aligned to parties and net net. Any, anybody want to? Mike, all yours. Yeah, Great question, Helen. Uh, look, the, the base
4: Republican vote for Latino vote um, sits at about 20 percent. In other words, 20 percent of Latinos are Republican. It's overwhelmingly made up of evangelical voters and uh, military veterans. Um, The numbers do not seem to be growing. They have not since the 1996 campaign. Um, But as the percentage of the electorate grows, it, of course, becomes a little bit more influential socially. As the professor pointed out, there has been a movement of faith-based voters across the demographic spectrum towards uh, Donald Trump in this last election cycle, I would probably attribute that a little bit more towards other variables like college education and income levels, where you saw a dramatic shift of college educated voters away from Donald Trump. So it may not necessarily be the religious components that are driving them. It may be education levels that are driving them. Um, and even, even overwhelming uh, issues of race and racial disparity. So I'm not concerned, uh, you know, is as, as, as this right word shift? Uh, maybe that's not the right phraseology. As, as a political consultant, but as a Republican, I'm probably on safe ground saying that, of this increasing evangelical movement within the Latino community. I just don't see that. It's about 20% of the electorate. It has been that way for 30 years. We all know the Catholicism has very rarely ever been a driver um, of most ethnicities in their political determinations. It's almost always a 50-50% vote, and other factors tend to drive it. It's kind of the nature of Catholicism. So I don't think that's going to be an increasing factor any more than it has been for the past three decades.
0: I've got a good setup question here for Shaniqua because she can can make the argument that's the very powerful one inside the party. This is from friend of the center, Sean Daniel, Hollywood legend. For Shaniqua, you say the Dems need to stop centering. How is that a winning strategy in 2022 in the effort to expand the slim nine-seat House majority and the even slimmer Senate count? Also a note to Murphy, I'm drinking hydrant water power out of my hacks on tap mug hydrant being something we plug on the hacks on tap podcast well thank you sean i will put one framing question out as shaniqua addresses this keep in mind off year turnout is lower so if you find a turnout thing that works where it really pays off is in off year elections now whether or not you can get off year voters to turn out in the on-year election has been historically a graveyard of broken things that didn't work but you know, it, it, the future, the future is yet to be made. So Shaniqua, what do you say to Sean and, and people who see it like that? He's a good Democrat, by the way.
3: <laughs> if it comes off as me saying don't talk to moderate white voters, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying they can't be the center of everything that we talk about. And so when you're thinking about the House of Representatives, unfortunately, all of our politics are national. And so that's going to be a burden for a uh, House candidates who are running in districts that are very specific, they know their districts. I think in those races, people should appeal to the voters in their district. This is a side belief. But if you don't actually represent the people you're trying to represent, you should just not run for office. And so I think people, um, I, I think in the House races, that's what we have to do, have have local candidates who can appeal to local issues. On the Senate side, of course, be knowledgeable of your state. But I think about a state like North Carolina, that is where I'm from. Tom Tillis beat my boss in 2014. So, you know, I was really hoping uh, that Cal Cunningham could win. But I think Cal Cunningham was not the right candidate. I think, I mean, I would love if Anthony Fox could come back to, to North Carolina and run. Um, but generally, I think they need a candidate who can appeal to more people. But candidate side, the strategy in North Carolina was to appeal to people who you know Governor Roy Cooper is very unique. He's able to get trump voters. Um, he was one of the few Democrats that that won in um, North Carolina, but particularly in 2016, he actually won statewide, even though uh, trump won, also won statewide and so it was i'm not sure how many other states I think maybe the a g race in Pennsylvania, but very few states where a Democrat won statewide and um and Donald Trump won at the top of the ticket. Roy Cooper is very unique. North Carolina is a diverse state. There are so many people they could have appealed to that did not turn out to vote. But again, they chose to focus on these folks in the middle. And so I, what I'm saying here is not to completely ignore white moderate voters. They are voters. We should be talking to them. But what I'm saying is stop prioritizing them over the voters of color who are just as important, whose votes count (laughs) just as much, Uh, and in my belief, are easier to turn out if you have the right message and actually deliver on um, the campaign promises you make. I think it's a lot easier to get those folks to not only show up, but to continue to show up reliably. But a big part of this is, you know, the Democratic Party needs to figure out kind of who they are. Uh, But one other thing I would add is 2018 is where we saw really high turnout, um, especially amongst Democrats in in a midterm election. What we're doing at Crooked, we want to repeat 2018 and 2022. And so we are not letting up, we're going to keep encouraging people to to be plugged in and organizing so that when we roll into 2022, we've already laid a strong foundation. But what we saw in Georgia is a perfect example of what happens when you have a message uh, that appeals to a lot of people, uh, not just the folks in the middle, but and I'm Sorry, specifically talking about Stacey Abrams' uh, gubernatorial race in 2018. So I think it's possible, and I think she is a, her campaign is a perfect example of not centering one group of voters, but actually appealing to all of them with the right message.
1: And I think there's something that we can't uh, overlook here. I mean, we've focused on a lot on on Democratic failures and what that may hold in store for 2022, but we can't uh, ignore the elephant in the room, which is uh, a certain former president who still refuses to accept that he lost the last election and seems ready to spark a, a civil war within the Republican Party. I mean, because of the large challenge that Joe Biden came into office having to deal with, he has the opportunity to Be like George W. Bush in two thousand and two, and push back against that tradition of the of the party uh, with the White House losing in the midterms. You know, if if he gets his economic package through, if they stop getting in their own way on the opening of the schools message, and meanwhile the Republicans, there's a you know Trump and McConnell are going to be fighting against one another over Senate candidates and things like that. The Democrats have a possibility of having a, a message of success going into 2022, while the Republican, you know, that old joke about Dems in disarray, it could be GOP in disarray and the voters are going to be looking at, okay, these guys got me my $1,400 and the country's starting to open up again, pandemics uh, falling by the wayside. Meanwhile, these guys have no idea what they're doing at all. And and so
0: that possibility can't be ignored yeah. either. That, look, the trick Biden may be able to, to win here is if he can get enough vaccines in arms and ride the economic comeback, he'll have a great counterforce to the kind of historical cycle of midterm rejection because he could have a very strong economic story. Then, well, then you're just, you're in, down to what Republican party are we dealing with next year? There are people in a Republican conference who think, ah, it only only seats more what we got, you know, hell, you know, we can just get the whole coalition crazy, semi-crazy regular. Others say, hey, we got to rebrand here because the seats we really want to get to get there are more suburban that we used to have than more of the base seats that we've already maxed out. So anyway, this is going to be the big, big debate, which is why it's all down to vaccines. So, Musa, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say,
2: actually, I don't remember what I was going to say because I got sidetracked by the suburbs comment. Because, So uh, I'll just plug this one thing about the suburbs that that was fascinating is – so Trump, throughout the 2016, uh, you know, cycle, throughout the 2020 cycle, and everywhere in between, Trump had this idea in his mind that what white suburban voters were motivated by is like sort of racial grievance or racial animus. So he kept mm-hmm. doing these things that he thought was giving his base, his base, as he understood his base, red meat, and they kept recoiling in horror. They did this in the in the. Um, Starting in the 2016 primaries, Trump won with the lowest share of the vote mm-hmm. of any Republican going back, right? And then in the, again, in 2016, he stagnant white, white turnout, um, lower vote share than Romney with whites. In 2018, the Republicans' own uh, sort of autopsy of what happened in 2018 from some of the prominent Republican uh, companies said that his message on in the lead up to the election, he was warning of an invasion of Central American migrants who were going to and their own messaging suggested that, I mean, their own uh, sort of autopsy suggested that this kind of message on immigration is what cost Republicans the House. And then going into 2020, he kept... Yeah. And so he didn't... Uh, Republicans continued to gain with people of color, but they continued to lose whites, and especially upper SES, sort of upper middle right. class, right. educated whites, suburban whites. And here's the thing. Here's what's so crazy about Trump's approach there, is that those voters sort of relatively well-off, educated suburban voters are the voters who care most, more than anyone else in the entire country, about things like decorum and civility and political correctness and a president being presidential, right? If you wanted to win the suburbs, if you wanted to win these, the last (laughs) thing you should do (laughs) is the kind of thing.
0: Yeah, well, look, it's a well-known fact of fashion that red MAGA hats and NPR tote bags do not mix. Trump and uh, Mike, Mike the
1: one way. other point I'd like to yeah. make here. If Donald Trump thought that, uh, you know, terrifying white suburban women with the image of the scary black man, Cory Booker does not really fit that
0: image. Yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> I agree. But look, they ran the whole midterm campaign. Madrid will remember this on MS-13. You know, yes. the yeah. Democrats had pre-existing conditions. <laughs> this, it wasn't a fair fight. It was a slaughter. It was actually a really good point. You have to
4: remember in 2016, it was about chanting, build the wall. In 2018, it was about the caravans coming from Central America, Mexico. You did not hear that dog whistling, and that was kind of more than dog whistling at that point, because they understood that they could move Hispanic votes. Where they did go was to a more traditional racist trope of the law and order messaging, when they're trying to move those Great Lakes states back into play by contrasting those non-college educated white voters against black voters with the law and order message. Obviously, it didn't work there, but it was a smart play to move off of that. And there is there was some recognition that if
0: they just were a little less racist, they could yep. actually do better with Hispanic voters. So I have a great question from Kathy Stewart to wrap up with. One shift that is also happening is the shift toward independent voting or party registration and away from party identification. Gallup just released their latest numbers and nationally 50% of Americans per Kathy now identify as independent. These trends are growing in the African-American uh, and I think Musa talked about this, and the Latino communities as well, especially in places like Arizona and Florida. How do the panelists see this phenomena as part of the dynamic of voters becoming less loyal to the Republican and Democratic Party? We have about three minutes, and then we got to wrap up. So who wants to take this one?
3: I'll be really quick. I just don't believe that that many uh, independent voters who will sway between the parties exist. I think people like calling themselves yeah, independent, uh, but they still hold their same voting patterns, unless you have like a Donald Trump that they just are completely repulsed by.
1: Just to key off on that, we've seen a serious number of Republican voters delisting from the Republican Party over the last two months, and actually, particularly over the last six weeks since the Capitol riot. So I do think that this trend is quite true, at least certainly on the uh, on the Republican side. And I think we're seeing to the extent that Democrats don't quite get their message right with Latinos and, and African-Americans. I think the idea, and to your earlier point, Shaniqua, of younger African-Americans that don't have that uh, historical link towards the Democratic Party, I think they may think of themselves as as independent and, and, and up for grabs.
2: So there have been some really fun, cheeky studies where they've um, tried to, to see how independent these self-declared independents are. And it turns out, actually, yeah, they tend to be pretty reliable. They like, uh, like Shaniqua said, they, they like to think of themselves as independents, but they tend to be pretty reliably aligned with one party or another. Now, that said, 2020 was genuinely interesting in that Joe Biden got the highest share of independent voters uh, for any Democrat really since the 1970s. You know, you can go back to as long as they've really done the exit polling and stuff. And he also had um, really, really high numbers with people who self-identify as moderates. But a lot of that shift that you saw has to do, I think, with when you look at the, the voters who are most likely to identify, who who are most likely to want to identify themselves as independent. Again, it tends to be these kinds of um, upper SES whites and whatever. So I think the real story there is, is just the movement among those, this demographic of relatively well-off white voters, you know, towards, uh, away from the Republican Party tells, I think, probably most of that story. But it is, it is noteworthy that Biden did win a larger share of independents yeah. and moderates, than previous democrats most almost pretty much almost completely as far back as the record goes for democrats
0: yeah, there's a lot of history of independent voters particularly suburban acting like republicans because they have a republican wallet but they don't want to have to explain that they're part of the uh the brand problem of saying you're a republican so there, i think there's a lot of truth in that and you can find that among people who lean democratic too so look i want to thank all of you and I want to make you sit through a quick commercial. If Joe Biden is successful and we have the economic comeback, don't forget the center here. We're, we're, we could use a little help. We do a lot of these programs. We have tremendous fellows here like Mike and Shaniqua. I mean, we, we, we're very proud of what we do at USC, the Center for the Political Future. All right? We're so good, we, we have a long name. And you should go to our website and see all the stuff we do, a lot of it now, virtual, because of the pandemic, that we're looking forward to open up again. We also do a lot for students. We get internships for them. Uh, during the election cycle, we actually took 12 kids out to the Iowa and got them jobs in the Iowa caucus so they could learn real politics, which if you're a young political nerd, is a life-changing experience. So we're proud of the work we do. And we could use your help. All you got to do is go to our website and check out joining the center leadership circles. You that funds all this stuff. And again, it's on the website. You can check it out. We would appreciate your help. Now. Speaking of stuff we do, we'll be back, or at least I'll be back, for our next discussion on an incredibly juicy topic as recall petitions are back on the streets of California. It's called The Future of California with our special guest. You can learn all about it. It is Thursday, February 25th at noon Pacific time. So, again, go right to our website, Center for the Political Future at USC, and you can learn all about that. It'll be on Zoom, too thank you again to our outstanding panel for all your help today. Do you, any of you have Twitter handles for people who want to keep in touch with your thinking? Let's quickly end on a plug. Robert, you first. I'm at Rob George. All right. Shaniqua.
3: It's underscore, underscore Shaniqua underscore.
0: I like that. I like that. Musa.
2: At Musa underscore Algarbi. And I also have a website, MusaAlgarbi.com. One word.
0: All right. Beautiful. And Mr. Madrid. At Madrid underscore Mike. All right. Perfect. And somebody emailed me the book title, Ian Haney Lopez Dog Whistle Politics, for people who are interested in checking that out. I know I'm going to. All right. With that, thank you so much on behalf of the center and the staff that does all the hard work. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at USC POL Future, that's USC POL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs.